You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis. And I'm delighted, as always, to have sitting opposite me, Dr. Harry Hagopian, to talk about, well, quite a lot, actually. Harry, how are you doing? I'm fine, James. It's a pleasure to be here with you again on the right side of Easter. Yeah, indeed. And we are going to examine quite a bit some subjects that one might not find synonymous with the Middle East, North Africa. Never mind. It all goes under the rubric of the Lenten period. Yeah, absolutely. Where we have to examine ourselves, soul searching and be a little bit rigorous with our discipline. Yeah, good point. Which means we can be a bit, try and be a little bit shorter today. (laughs) You really think that's going to (laughs) happen? No, not really. I know a bit better than that. Um, So we will start with something that possibly does not emanate from the Middle East, North Africa, Brexit. Now, Uh we've we've just had a weekend gone by where there was a huge march um, in central London to, if you like, show perhaps a different will of the people to the one that's being uh, put across. And uh, some one million plus, I believe, people on the streets to to really call for us to stay within the European Union. And a petition which has been, I mean, I've seen that flying around. I've been sent it by about, I don't know, 20, 30 people, um, which has, it's a gov.uk um, petition, which anyone can set up. And it's to sort of revoke Article 50, would that be the right phrase? That is the right phrase. And some 5 million, I think we're possibly just No, no, no over 5 to, million. Over people five are aiming for 6 million. And in fact, when you hear this, such is the rate of uh, increase in this petition, I'm sure it'll be more than that. Um, now, Harry, we talk about this off off mic quite a bit. There's a lot to talk about. And I know legally you're involved with, with all sorts of things, really, so you're closely looking at it. Um, coups to remove Theresa May, whether there will be another meaningful vote. We've talked about the uh, big march in London and the petition. But you know what? I really don't even know where we're at. I did at the start, to, to a certain extent. I think probably like many others, over the last few years, I've just got increasingly disillusioned and confused. Is that the state of the country? That is pretty much the state of the country, James. And in a sense, you are right. At the beginning, we thought that we had a binary choice, stay remain or leave, exit the EU. And when people were ticking the box during that referendum in 2016, people were partly emotional, partly reactive, partly uh, because of the way that the then Prime Minister David Cameron introduced this uh, referendum, thinking that in so doing, he will be the Prime Minister to resolve the conflicts within the Tory party between those who like Europe and those who hate Europe. So at that stage, we thought, OK, so we either decide we want to leave or not. But as the negotiations uh, went forward, I was going to use the word progress, but progress is a very painful word because there wasn't so much progress as there was a movement in, uh, with the negotiations with Brussels, uh, it became quite obvious that the devil is in the detail. And when it came to the huge raft of legislation that had to be addressed, the rights that we as Europeans and as Brits would be losing as a result of Brexit, and the fact that this is something that would impact future generations more than certainly my generation and older people, then it became 
truly confusing because people suddenly realize that it's not just an emotive issue. No, we are Great Britain. We rule the, the seas. We are not part of that continent called Europe. We can stand on our own feet. It was far, far more than that. And I think that the petition you mentioned, which is on the government website, uh, which in my opinion as well will come around six million, I think, plus the march in central London, which was huge. And it was attended by lots and lots of uh, people, not only politicians. There were politicians there. Nicola Sturgeon was there. Lamy was there. Uh, Tom Watson was there because his boss was in Morecambe. He decided not to come to the march. Uh, There were so many people. And then there were Uh, people in the entertainment industry, in journalism, uh, a historian, Dan Snow, was there. So the whole impact of that million-plus demonstration in central London, plus the petition, is only, in my opinion, a way of saying that when we talk about, oh, 52% decided to leave in 2016, this was pretty much the tribe of the 48% who were expressing themselves and saying, yes, the 52% had an opinion, so did we. And at the moment, uh, circumstances, in my opinion, have changed so dramatically, so radically from 2016 till now, our level of understanding and knowledge of what is or isn't in terms of Brexit is so much more sophisticated, despite the confusion, despite the endless meaningful votes, that I think people have to reconsider. Democracy is not, in my books, a turgid, unmoving Uh, concept that once established cannot be shaken. If circumstances change, in international law, we have a whole raft of principles and maxims about how circumstances change. The same applies to those referenda. Uh, If circumstances change, maybe it is worth our while revisiting this issue and thinking, okay, what do we do? We might well still exit, but we might do it in a way that is not as dogmatic and as self-serving to one end and self-flagellating on the other. Do you know, I'm not going to necessarily reveal how I voted, although I say that and I probably have in a previous podcast because we have touched upon this. Yeah. Um, But I do find myself rather irritated by criticisms of those that voted leave as well. I think in a sense, some of the arguments have become a little bit anti-intellectual and a little bit them and us and I think quite dispiriting. I know that one could bucket people on both sides who are unsavoury in inverted commas but I think what it does show and what is quite tragic is that there's a fairly even split and I do take your point about democracy and shake-ups and changes and whether it would be 16 and a half and 17 and a half now I'm, I'm not so sure but it does prove how divided we are and, and that is part of the problem isn't it or that is not part of the problem you're right that is the key problem because what has happened as a result of this referendum this whole brexit debate if debate is the right word for it is that our country is deeply painfully sorely divided into two halves And when they say never the twain shall meet, in a sense, that is what's happening because there is within the same family, within the same tribe, within the same society, within the same city, the country is divided and it's divided in a very 
a bitter, almost pugilistic manner. And in that sense, that is what worries me most because we've unleashed that genie. We've got now people who are sort of so upset and so emotional about it that even if tomorrow the prime minister, whether uh, Theresa May or anybody else, or whether parliament would succeed in finding this panacea or this solution to Brexit and we come back to calmer waters, there's been so much emotion that's come out. It's not going to be as easy as that to put the country back together. And what I've always said in the past, uh, I was not born in this country. I came to this country by choice, by the way. I didn't come because I needed to seek asylum. I didn't come because I was desperate for immigration. I was living in France. I could have stayed in France. Mm -hmm. I came here by choice because I loved so much of the institutions and the character and temperament of this country. And I tell you, the character and temperament of the country since the days I came here and became a law student and stayed on has changed dramatically to the worse. And that worries me because I, like everybody else from the 52% or 48% tribes, loves this country, but does not necessarily like where we are going today. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think, though, and um, I'm going to be a bit provocative here, but is it not difficult for you from, from a legal perspective, only because I'd imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that lawyers like rules and structures and agreements and things that are definable. And the difficulty here is that actually, however bad one might say the terms of the referendum were back in 2016, do you not find it, on the one hand, you can see perhaps a, a better way for the country, but at the, the on the other side of it, there was a referendum that came up with, albeit, a tight result? Not necessarily, James, for a variety of reasons. Reason number one is that let us not forget that this referendum, when it took place in 2016, everybody was saying that it is not binding. It's not a binding piece of legislation, so it's not descended from heaven. It's not one of the four Gospels. It's not something that we cannot digress from if it is in the interest of the country to do so. That's the first point. The second point, I would say, yes, lawyers seek uh, clarity and seek consensus whenever possible and if not possible they make a lot of money uh, because of the difference between the two parties the thereof. <laughs> yes however I would say that the variety of lawyers a huge number of lawyers I know and a number of them are QCs are all coming on the side of remain why because there is something that we have to take on board Put emotions aside, this country has been very interesting to me as an immigrant of many decades ago, that it's a country that whilst we are very much ensconced in Europe, we think of ourselves as being different. We are an island, therefore our mentality is different, therefore our approach and our attitude to Europe is different. Those continental uh, sissies uh, on the mainland aren't really our cup of tea. And all that. And then suddenly uh, Europe was discovered. Look at the number of people who go to Europe either on holiday or what have you every year. So in a sense, uh, this 
whole idea has been one of emotion and an emotive response. I listened to Brexiteers, ministers who come up and said, we are going to be okay. We're going to go and find other trade organizations and other treaties and agreements to do. My question to them is very simple. If you're going to go and get other agreements, then you had so much agreement that 10% of our output is with Europe, 49% of our input is from Europe. Why would we then throw this away and say, yes, but we are Britain, we can go and find it somewhere else? And my concluding point on that, which is something that a lot of lawyers, by the way, there were many QCs and many lawyers like me who were at the march on Saturday in central London, Uh, They were all saying the same thing. They're all telling me, look, the petition is brilliant. This march is good. We can win the arguments. And to be honest with you, we can, as Remainers rather than Leavers, uh, win the argument if it comes to a straight academic legal argument. But that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people's emotions, with people's hearts. And if that is really what we are dealing with rather than fact and figure, then might I suggest that those who think that we're better off with a no-deal Brexit, they might for one minute pause and think, "Okay, I'm in my 50s and 60s, soon I'm going to retire, there is still a couple of penny in the pension box that I can use. What about my kids and uh, grandkids? They are the ones who are going to suffer, and I don't think any father, mother or family would wish to visit that upon their children. We had the best of it while we were growing up because Europe was open borders. Do we have the right to stop our kids and grandkids from having that same right? That is the question I would ask uh, people who are reacting emotively to this whole idea of we are Great Britain. Forget the great at the moment, focus on Britain and think about 10, 20 years down the line. No, I I accept that. I I do imagine there are quite a few young Brexiteers as well, to be quite honest with you. Oh, there might be quite a few young uh, Brexiteers. Some of your colleagues might even be Brexiteers. They might be. Yeah, but having said that, the majority of the people I've met have told me that when the vote took place in 2016, there was a motion to allow 16 and 17 year olds to vote. Oh, yes. That motion was quashed. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if that had happened, I bet you the result would have been different. And now that those 16, 17 years old or 20, 21 years old, if they're going to vote as well, then I think it's going to be at the very least a very tight uh, second people's vote uh, if it were ever to happen, which, to be honest with you, I have a big question mark on that. But I always tell this to Brexiteer friends of mine and even colleagues in the legal profession. If you're so sure that the country wants to leave, if Nigel Farage is so sure that this is whole, a whole conspiracy and that the country wants it more now than before, and guess what? He might be right. Why are you so afraid to go for a second vote? Well, I tell you what, this is definitely Britain-Europe analysis for, for the first third of our podcast, so we do need to move on. But I am going to ask the flipping obvious question, which is, with everything flipping you've said... Flipping obvious, I've seen that on television as an ad. Probably. Flipping obvious. I'm not, okay, I'm go not sure ahead. I'm allowed to use it, but <laughs> me trying to be polite. In which case, do you think we will exit the European Union? That's a very hard question because you're putting me on the spot, uh, James, in a way that is even more brutal than you sometimes do. 
Uh, I am not a prophet. I cannot tell you whether the UK will exit uh, Europe or not. What I would say is the following. I think a change will have to happen in our relationship with Europe because after three years of all this argument, you can't just sort of say we'll put the clocks back to June 2016 as if nothing happened. So something is going to happen. But in the same way, I would add that I don't think that the majority of the Brits would happy would be happy with a no-deal Brexit. So I think as is the case with uh, politics in general, we'll find a fluffy centre somewhere at some stage. Pleasing absolutely no one. But anyway, never mind. Shall we actually head into the region now? Yes, let's go to a region that I might know a thing or two more about. Well, you've lived in it, so I hope so. (laughs) Um, But we are going to talk about... Living in a country does not mean you understand a country. Uh, It's my current state of affairs. (laughs) Nice one. But I have worked a lot on issues pertaining to these countries, and that is where I think I might bring something to the larger conversation. Well, definitely. And actually, I'm going to require you to do a bit of geography and a bit of history on this next uh, topic. So you'll know instantly. Golan Heights. We're going to talk about Israel. We're going to talk about border territories, actually. Um, we will go on to Israel's elections, which I believe are taking place on the 9th of April. Yes, they are. So that is the sort of second half of our Israel segment. So Golan Heights, um, apparently today, Monday the 25th of March, I don't often give away times, but... Um, no, it, you don't. I'm surprised you're yeah. doing this, which means you've got tonight... At home, I've instead got a few of hours. having your pizza, you've got to spend a few hours editing this I've got to hammer through this. That's putting pressure on myself. But it may be the day, we're expecting it to be the day, that President Trump signs an executive order recognising Golan Heights as Israeli territory. That's correct, isn't it? Yes. Can you start by telling us, though, for those that don't know, where the Golan Heights actually is? Yes. Uh, you've, you've thrown in quite a few questions there. Uh, The Golan Heights, for those who haven't visited the Golan Heights, if anybody has heard of the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias or has ever looked at a map to see the border between Syria and Israel, that is where in the Galilee the Golan Heights can be found. Mm -hmm. The Golan Heights is a very rich, fertile uh, area where it's got lots of agricultural uh, produce and where it is also quite rich in hydrocarbons. There are many of the best wineries and wines that come out of Israel, and they've been doing this for the last two, three decades, that actually are from uh, grapevines that are found there because it's hilly, it's high, the altitude is high, but there is a lot of uh, sun, so it's really nice. And the Golan Heights has been occupied by Israel from Syria in 1967 alongside with what was then the Sinai uh, Peninsula as well as the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, The annexation and the recognition of the Golan Heights being part of Israel by President Trump It's very interesting because I thought personally that the writing was on the wall. 
I predicted that President Trump would come out and and move his embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I did it on many uh, interviews. I even did it with our podcast. And lo and behold, it did happen. And mm -hmm. I also equally 10 days ago predicted that President Trump is going to say that the Golan Heights is no longer occupied territory, that it is actually part of uh, a sovereign state of Israel. And why did I say that? I didn't say that because I had a dream. I leave that to Martin Luther King. Why I said it is simply because I read the facts. And one of the facts that happened is that the U.S. State Department came out with its annual human rights report in which for the first time they refused to refer to the Golan Heights as occupied territory just as they are no longer re uh, referring to the West Bank or to use Israeli uh, biblical terms, Judea and Samaria, as being occupied territory. Suddenly, occupied becomes disputed. Mm. And therefore, I thought something is afoot. And lo and behold, 10 days later, uh, Trump does this. Uh, now, it's interesting he does this because I have a lot of comments on this, but I'll just uh, say a couple. One of them is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Nobody was talking about the Golan Heights. Certainly Syria and its president weren't talking about the Golan Heights. In fact, uh, since 67, there's hardly been any skirmish between Syrians and Israelis on the Golan Heights because Syria would probably be quite happy to keep the peace there. So why suddenly bring this up and create a whole... Uh, set of reactions. You're asking and answering my questions. This is good. Go on. Yes, I am asking and answering your questions. Well, one of the things is because in Israel there are elections, and that ties in with part two of your question on Israel-Palestine. And in those elections, at the moment, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not doing as well as he thought he would because there is a coalition of different political uh, politicians and political parties, certainly of three former generals. Uh, there is uh, Benny Gantz, then there is Ashkenazi, then there is Yalon, who've come together in combination, in coalition with people like Yair Lapid, in order to form a counter uh, coalition to Likud and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, coalition. And therefore, Trump because I think Trump and Netanyahu are, come from the same, uh, drink water from the same well, they, he is trying to help him. He's trying to boost his uh, popularity so that he wins the elections on the 9th of April. So in a sense, this is a very crass, a very cheap uh, way of interfering with politics in Israel by showing that the best friend of Israel, President Trump, who changed the embassy's location, who's going to recognize the Golan Heights as being sovereign Israeli territory, is actually saying, you know what, guys, you Israelis, Bibi Netanyahu is the best thing for you. Go and vote for him. But my worry there is neither President Assad and whether he loses the Golan Heights or not, nor is it whether Bibi Netanyahu gets it for Israel or not as a sovereign territory. What really concerns me and concerns a lot of distinguished commentators 
uh, and writers, is that by so doing, he's yet shattered another principle that is embedded, that is made incarnate in the United Nations Charter, which is the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war or by violence. In one little signature, and his signature is quite a florid one, he is going to once again run amok with international law. He's going to once again challenge international law because he is running foreign policy on tweets and impulses, not on principles and law. And in so doing, he's going to say, you know what, guys, if tomorrow Israel wants to get the whole of the West Bank as Israeli territory, I'm fine with that. If the Russians want to take Crimea from the Ukraine, I'm fine with that. If the Chinese want to get those islands in the South China Sea from the Japanese, I'm okay with that. Where in the Dickens are we going? I mean, yes, the world is upside down. It's a popular, populist I don't know what terms are used anymore these days, but it's a world that's sort of uh, turned on its head, but not to this extent where uh, the most powerful man of the most powerful nation can do whatever he wants, and all the minions around him, whether on the hill or elsewhere, are basically afraid to stand up and say anything. Well, I, I tend to think that world politics appears to be turning into a giant telenovela at the moment, but anyway, never yeah, mind. Could do. Um, well, let's play ball. I mean, you described it as crass, but just one final question on this. We'll, we'll, we'll play ball. Benny Gantz, the coalition um, of former generals, you say, Let's presume they actually get a bit of traction and on the 9th or just after they get some power. How would they treat Palestine? That's a very interesting question because there again, one of the things that is quite interesting is that when you're trying to uh, push uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the Likud forward and let the others recede, and Gantz is one of them. By the way, his coalition, for those who don't know, is called the Blue and White uh, Party in Hebrew. If, uh, if you do that, then you're not necessarily tomorrow going to get somebody who's going to go and give uh, Mahmoud Abbas a big hug and tell the Palestinians, you know what? All the settlements... We're going to take them out. We're going to give you back your territory. You can have Jerusalem back and have your own embassy on the Arab East Jerusalem side of the city. All that is not going to happen. But at least the difference between uh, between Gantz and Netanyahu, I think, is if anybody has ever heard him speak, and I've heard him speak in Hebrew, he speaks very little, very slowly, and he's not one of those firebrand politicians who sort of goes around in, in fireworks and basically sublimates after each interview. And interestingly enough, I would even go further to say that the fact that he's a general might reassure some Israelis. But if you look at the electoral system in Israel and if you look at the history of Israeli elections from the 1970s onwards, there have been so many generals who've come in from both the right and the left of the political spectrum. And I can't really see anybody who has actually been able to deliver in any major way. So it is not so much a question of 
will he be able to give everything back to the Palestinians? But maybe a coalition that has some pragmatic people like Gantz and others would be able, first of all, to stop the slide into right-wing rhetorical populism and also at the same time stop the slide of further settlements, further outposts, further annexations, and further polarization. Because at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, and no matter how much Netanyahu and his right-wing uh, allies uh, hope for, you're not going to obviate or remove or make disappear over three million Palestinians just because you don't like them. One day there has to be a solution. And whether today we take an embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem or whether we do something else, that to me is not the point. The point is far more down the line. So what is happening at the moment is Israel is living a moment of glory via Netanyahu, which I consider a dangerous moment of glory, just as I consider a lot of what U.S. President Trump does in the Middle East, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Israel-Palestine, wherever I look, there is always a little question mark in my mind as to what's happened. And this is why when you talk to the Arabs across the region, and I'm not talking about the rulers who basically are attached to the American apron strings, I'm talking about ordinary men and women, the the Joe Bloggses of the Arab world, why there is so much dislike and animosity to the Americans. They love everything. Arabs love everything about America from McDonald's to consumerism to the country, but they can't stand its political bias. And that's one of the things that is at the moment being made even more visible than it has been under previous U.S. presidents. Well, interesting what you say, actually, about Gantz and, and perhaps a calmer voice. So, yes, we may not see sweeping changes, but certainly a calmer voice might be a better voice for the time being. An openness, a pragmatism that at least allows a dialogue. And you know that at the end of the day, every two days, we're not going to have another parcel of land uh, expropriated. We're not going to have another outpost. We're not going to have more olive trees uh, uprooted. We're not going to have an even deeper freeze of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, process or alternatively across two ponds. We're not going to cut off more and more and more and more money so that even something like the German hospital on the Mount Scopus uh, runs out of money, just something like the people-to-people -people dialogue movements that both Israelis and Palestinians are invested in also begin to splinter away because the money that the Americans gave to help them do those uh, exercises, those dialogical exercises, is no longer there. We are going to move to North Africa, Harry. Well, not literally me and you, um, but we will take on North Africa, which we haven't actually in some time. No, we honest. haven't. And when you started the intro, uh, James, you said you're going to touch upon Algeria and Sudan. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do that, that's a slightly deeper than North Africa you're going to. Well, we'll to. start in the north. Okay. <laughs> and, and we'll migrate south. Um, but this, I'm afraid, is where I need your expertise because you know far more than me. The one thing I did notice in terms of Algeria, where we will start, is that the 82-year-old president, Abdul Aziz Bouteflika, I hope I've pronounced that right. Probably Bouteflika. Better, better. Um, 
Now, there was some talk about him actually standing again. And there have been sort of, I think, the fifth Friday of protests we've just had. Um, and then maybe he won't stand for a fifth term. Um, but he did postpone the upcoming elections. And there's a huge amount of dissatisfaction, isn't there, about him and his regime? Let me just make it clear, James, that uh, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who is the president, and he's already had four mandates, and he's been president since 1999. Uh, this man will not stand again. I mean, that has been resolved. He's not going to run for a fifth uh, mandate. And uh, when he came back from his hospital in Switzerland, he was planning to run for a fifth, or at least his coterie of advisors, and certainly his brother, who is a big player behind the scenes, were hoping that he would run. Uh, the man is incapacitated. The man is not only old. The man is also very, very sick. There have been rumors going around that he suffers from stomach cancer. There are rumors that he had a very bad stroke. Uh, I mean, I would like to see how many people have seen this man actually speak in public or appear in public. It's all done via statements which purportedly he writes or he, he expresses or voices. Well, he's not going to run for a fifth mandate, but when he came back, he said this. He thought, and the regime, the party, it's been the same party that has ruled Algeria since post-independence from France. And in a sense, he thought that just reassuring Algerians that I'm not going to run for a fifth mandate would actually quieten them down. Of course, it didn't for a very simple reason that the people are saying, OK, if you're not going to run, when are the elections going to take place? And there is no answer for that because the word indefinite is being banded about. And indefinite in the Arab and North African lexicon means forever and ever and the day. So in a, in a sense, the young people, and it's mostly young people, but there are also some older people who are out and pouring out in the streets and saying enough is enough. We don't want, we didn't want a fifth mandate. We got that, but we don't want this to continue. We want new elections. So the whole question at the moment in Algeria is, okay, uh, Bouteflika has a lot of kudos to him. When he was alive, in the real sense of the word, and was a politician whose word counted. He did a lot to quieten the country down, to rally the country uh, together, to finish with the Islamist uh, uprisings that took place in Algeria. Not only that, but something that might interest you, he actually also uh, drew up a charter for reconciliation uh, amongst Algerians. And if you look at that charter of reconciliations, it's almost a photocopy of the Sant'Egi Egidio uh, Charter. So in a sense, uh, for people who know what Sant'Egidio is, I thought that was quite funny. But anyway, so he has done a lot of things, but the man is past his expiry date, and the party is past its expiry date. And now the question is, how and who organizes the, the new elections. Because if the ruling party does it, then you can bet your bottom dollar, if you trade in dollars, that uh, the party is going to win again because it's nepotism rampant in that part of the world. However, a lot of people are saying, no, we have to find an independent structure where we have a transitional period of four to six months, where we prepare for fresh elections and where everybody goes out to vote. And in that sense, what is interesting is that, uh, in a sense, what 
has happened is that the opposition parties and the youth, la jeunesse, people like, and then thinkers, intellectuals, people like Daoud Kamil and others have come out and said enough is enough. If they manage to do an election, then they might spare uh, Algeria the hints of the Arab Spring that you and I spoke so much about since 2010 in a former life and on a former bandwidth. Do you know what? You've done it again. I was about to ask about the parallels. I was about to, in fact, mention Tunisia and way uh-huh. back when and self-emoliation and whether this is the sort of protesting that could lead to a mass, you know, expression of the will of the people. Um, uh, maybe I'll leave it on that question. I mean, what, what, tell me about the scale of the protests and whether it's in that league. The scale of the protests are huge. There is no doubt about it. If they weren't huge, the fifth mandate for Bouteflika will never have been uh, cancelled. Uh, the the party, the ruling party, would not have started making serious noises about fresh elections and a change even in some articles of the constitution in order to accommodate those changes. None of that will have happened if there had been no massive protests across the whole country. This is not only the capital. This is across the whole country. And this is not only by students from universities. It's universities. It's lawyers. It's journalists. Everybody is coming out and saying in French, dégagez-vous, dégagez-vous, because Algerians are from the French colonial times are French speakers. And you have four words of Arabic or Berber and two words of French in the same sentence. And dégagez-vous means just go. And in a sense, in Arabic, the Arabic equivalent of that during the Arab Spring was irhal, leave. So in a sense... Uh, the, what is happening is massive protests asking for this. But interestingly enough, because the world observers, commentators, the Tom Friedmans of this world do not always give enough credit to the Arab street. The Arab street is an extremely politicized and canny, astute political uh, thinker. And that street, unlike Europe, I can tell you, if you go to a European street, any high street or high road in in our country, and you talk to people, they probably wouldn't even know the names of two-thirds of the ministers in the cabinet, let alone anything else. Go to any Arab in any country, Yemen, Libya, uh, Tunisia, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, whatever, they would know the inner details of politics. People live politics, breed politics, breathe politics, and that's because their whole life is constantly affected by uh, politics. These uh, people have learned the lessons of 2010-2011, so much so that if you've noticed one of the biggest differences, distinctions, is that thankfully and fortunately, the army has not come out in the streets. The army has maintained its neutrality. And when you have those protests in the streets, like you mentioned the fifth uh, Friday in a row of protests uh, a few days ago, that Friday was almost like a kermis, like feast, like joys, people joking and laughing, but making the point very clear. So in a sense, lessons have been learned. But the question that is most fundamental, and it is a question that I've asked time and time again, whether about Syria and Iraq or about Palestine and Algeria, is what happens next? 
do we have the structures for a transition and reform or not? It is one thing for you and me to say we want a nice Jaguar for our birthday. It's another thing to know that we either have the money in our account or we have friends who will be able to offer us that Jag. That is the difference, and that is where I think we are coming to, because unlike a place like Syria, which is a one-man rule, Algeria has been a one-party rule, but with institutions. And my hope is that those institutions would come in good stead if and when the elections take place and diversity does actually kick in. Can we have a quick word on Sudan? I know it's sort of fallen out of the um, public gaze in terms of the economic and humanitarian crisis which has been raging there. But, um, well, tens of thousands dead and many, I think, around about four million, one in three displaced. So this is not a small-scale problem. Um, Al-Bashir's regime, the protests against it, give us the lowdown as far as you see it at the moment. Basically, in a nutshell, uh, James, because it is becoming a little bit old news and by now our listeners will be tired of my voice, uh, you might do one of your magical things perhaps in the program of putting different compartments or links for each theme so they can choose at will which one they want to listen to. That's me telling you how to do your job. You're still high energy. Carry on. (laughs) But uh, as far as Sudan is concerned, basically, unfortunately, one thing about Sudan is that the north, Sudan, was one country until it split from southern uh, Sudan. And now we have two countries. And much of the oil is in the south, not in the north. So uh, economic hardships increased incrementally and dramatically in Sudan, whose capital is Khartoum. And... Uh, As economic hardships increased, and remember, the president of Sudan is wanted by the International Criminal Court, not that that prevents him from traveling to some countries, but as economic hardships increased, so did the levels of corruption. And what started with al-Bashir as being another military man, what started with al-Bashir as being a hopeful mandate has turned into one that is mired down in corruption. And yet again, the people of Sudan are saying enough is enough. We want a change. But uh, in Sudan, like next door uh, Egypt, eventually the army is sort of trying to reimpose its will upon the people. Will it manage to do that or not? You know, I'm tired of asking the same question to myself primarily before asking it to you or any other interviewee or listener. I no longer know when or how or what is the magical potion that will first make the Arab world really come up. I was listening. I'm digressing a bit, James. Never mind. Humor me. I was listening to one of the best Arab commentators who actually comes from uh, Palestine who was saying, guys, you've lost Jerusalem and now you're losing the Golan Heights. Is there nobody that's going to go out and protest these uh, iniquities? And the reason is probably because the people are tired and they no longer have the energy to do it. So my question of will it happen, won't happen, I've long ago given up on trying to prove I'm a clever dick by giving you the answers you want and just telling you these are the facts, 
you choose your answers and God, time, uh, elements, whatever it is, will one day come together to change realities as they are. So nobody knows, just like Brexit, nobody knows what the meaningful vote will bring on Tuesday or Wednesday if it ever comes to Parliament again. In the same way, we see those protests. We are filled with hope. You and I used to talk about Syria as if tomorrow Syria is going to become a ray of hope. Look where we are in, in Syria. We've gone back to an, at least an equally unsettled space. The same applies across the board, which is why when I tell my Arab intellectual friends, you know, you're wasting your time uh, trying to write and think about the region. And they look at me like, God, Harry, you really lost it. But in a sense, that impatience of mine can be seen across many, many other people too. But, you know, it, we said that it had fallen out away from the headlines a bit, but I, ha I did read one headline that I thought was quite apt describing Sudan as Africa's secret crisis. That's about right, isn't it? Yeah, that is about uh, right. It is Sudan is Africa's Arab crisis because Sudan has many other crises happening from the DRC to wherever even the floods now are a crisis of their own in Mozambique and Zimbabwe. So in a sense, it is a crisis, but I would say it is one of many crises. And that is because for some reason that I haven't yet managed to figure out, there is, like the patriarchs of the Orient in the Christian uh, tradition, the presidents of many Arab republics think that they have been installed on that chair to stay there until the day they are put in a coffin and buried. Nobody thinks about the people, and that is what worries me a lot these days. We can repeat that across the world, can't we? Certainly, yes, we certainly can. all the topics we've talked we about We can today. certainly do that. Let me do a plug there, if you don't mind, By all uh, means. James. My book on Israel-Palestine is coming out in May. And the title that me and my editor have used, and which hopefully will be confirmed uh, in the next couple of weeks, is Losing Faith in Hope pretty appropriate. And that says a lot about Israel-Palestine, but it says a lot across the wider spectrum of the Middle East-North Africa region. Even the Gulf at the moment, where three countries are at war with one country because they don't like its policies. Says a lot if I don't get a signed copy. That's all I'm saying. Well, you will get a signed copy if you do another MEA analysis interview with me after ah. the book comes out on the book itself. Quid pro quo, eh? <laughs> That was yeah. Latin, wasn't it? it yeah. <laughs> right. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to in indulge, but it's an important point, And we will finish, actually, um, with the, a word or two, if you don't mind, on one of the key Armenian religious leaders, mm -hmm. uh, Patriarch Mesrop II. Oh, yes. Um, the late Mesrop II. Indeed. So I know you spoke in London, actually, um, about the Patriarch, and you were quite close to him, weren't you? I was close to him. I liked the Patriarch. For those uh, people who are listening to us, uh, whether they're Catholic or Anglican, but these people 
think that there is only one leader in the Christian world. It's either the Archbishop of Canterbury or it's the Pope in Rome. There is no conception that Christianity goes beyond this. And uh, um, the late Patriarch Mesrop II or Archbishop Mesrop Mutafian was the Patriarch, in other words, the leader of the Armenian Christian community in Turkey. Which in itself is interesting. Which in itself is very interesting. And if you look at the official title, it's the Armenian Church See of Constantinople. Now, of course, we know that Constantinople fell and now Constantinople is Istanbul. So in Turkey, there has been an Armenian church, which is the fourth most important uh, church or CSWE of the Armenian uh, Orthodox Church across Mm -hmm. the whole world. The first is in Armenia, the second is in Lebanon, the third is in Jerusalem, and the fourth is in Turkey. But there is the not so small matter of the Armenian genocide. Is that not quite a difficult place to minister as the patriarch. Well, that's part of the reason why I liked the man a lot. Uh, I found him wise. I found him promising. I found him somebody who actually engaged and fired up the youth in in uh, in his community in Turkey. But I also found him as somebody who had to navigate across the very treacherous waters of the Armenian history in Turkey, in Ottoman Turkey, and the Armenian genocide. And in a sense, he really, I wrote a a little piece, and you're right, I spoke at the Armenian church after his death. His conversations about the Armenian genocide were like dancing on the head of a pin. And if you knew the man, he was a big, powerful man. You can't possibly imagine him on the head of a pin. But having said that, uh, the man had to compromise or find a common ground, a middle ground between his Armenian identity and the history that Armenians uh, went through during World War One in Turkey itself. Over a million Armenians lost their lives and many were deported. And on the other hand, the fact that he's living in that particular country whose predecessor regime has been responsible for this genocide. And so Armenians who are nationalists across the world used to blame him and criticize him for not speaking up loudly and sort of saying this was a genocide and we cannot accept it. Yes, if you're living 3,000 miles away and having your little uh, Diet Coke, you can say this. But when you're living in Istanbul and now increasingly more so in a very repressive, uh, monochromatic political system, you have to be careful. And the man was very careful. Some people didn't like it. I appreciated him a lot. I appreciated his legal and political acumen. He was a philosopher by by uh, university uh, studies, by the way. And I also liked the man for his engaging ability to reach out uh, to to other people in his community. We certainly need those people because uh, faith today is a struggle, has always been a struggle. And if you don't have people who are able to multiply the bread and the fish in a proper way, then you'll either die from over gluttony or from starvation. And that is the challenge that Armenians also are facing. And unfortunately, for the last 10 years of his life, he was a patriarch only in name because he got Alzheimer's disease and people said 
more than Alzheimer's disease, and I leave it to people's imagination to figure out what I mean by that. But uh, for 10 years, he was almost incapable to run the country. So in a sense, when he died, people said in Armenian, Azadetsav. Azadetsav in Armenian means who? He's now free. He doesn't have to suffer anymore. I said in my talk, yes, he, Azadetsav, he was freed from the shackles of physical infirmity, but at the same time, the Armenian church, be it Orthodox, be it Catholic, be it Evangelical, lost a man of faith. He was a conservative, by the way, a man of faith, but also a man of wisdom. And faith and wisdom are not ingredients you find aplenty these days, even within the hallowed uh, halls of our churches. And I don't think necessarily that a successor will find it uh, the job any easier, necessarily. Thank you very much for having said that. You pretty much concluded my thought. A successor will not find it any easier, but before we decide whether the successor will find it easier or not, the big challenge now is to find the appropriate successor who will fill in those big shoes that Mesrop II filled before something went wrong with his uh, brain wiring. Well, I think there's something going wrong with our brain wiring from time to time as well. <laughs> but I have to say, that's a solid You're hour. You're not referring to Brexit, are you? I'm, I could be referring to anything. Can I? <laughs> that would be a wiring fault. <laughs> Harry, listen, that's been the best part of an hour. And we don't get enough of your time. So forgive me for indulging myself by uh, allowing a very long podcast. It's today, and I a hope, pleasure. Hope the listeners will. James, it's a pleasure. One of my dearest and closest friends, who is one of the leading Arab intellectuals of this world, an author, a, 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 a lecturer at the university, and somebody, I don't know if you've ever met her, but you know her by name. She often tells oh, me I that I she, uh, she has, she always enjoys our interviews, our Middle East analysis interviews. And she says, it's not only because of what you say. Most of what you say, I also know. And between you and me, she probably would teach me a thing or two as well. But she says, what I like is the banter and the way the two of you communicate during an interview. So if she likes it, I just hope that there'll be another couple of people who would like our uh, podcasts. I hope so too, because in an hour, I haven't been able to banter so much with you. <laughs> but nonetheless, it has been fascinating. And for an unusual Middle East analysis, if we're honest, it certainly has deviated from the name of the podcast in that we've had a long Brexit chat. We've also gone a little bit south of North Africa to Sudan. Um, and of course, some of our staple diet, Israel, Palestine and other things. Um, but thank you very much, Harry. Much appreciated. And we will see how all these topics and more come to pass. But it's... Um, terrifically complicated. It is terrifically complicated and let me, and I'm sure you join me in wishing all our listeners a blessed Easter. Mm. As I always say when we talk about grim news from the Middle East, North Africa, I always remember there is a cross, but that cross is not the symbol of death. It's the symbol of resurrection. So there is always hope at the end of the journey. The question is, how long is that journey going to take? And as you said earlier, will we still be alive for it? Oh, you're joining me on that I fatalism. Am. Brilliant. I'm not that far behind you. <laughs> right. Well, thank you ever so much, listeners. Hope you've enjoyed that. And I will certainly bend Dr. Harry Hagopian's arm and force him back into the studio after travels to, to climbs that I know are, are 
coming up. So we'll get you back in here as soon as we can. Harry, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.